Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered, for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Modern. And welcome back to Masters of Modern. I am your host, Alex Kessler, here with my co-host, Ben Bateman. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Modern Masters Anticipation Build-Up Weeks. This is an exciting-looking set. It's, it's really just unfair of Wizards. They should warn us how sweet the set was going to be so that I could you know, save more money than I've saved so I can buy more of it. It's just really not okay. Yeah, it looks really exciting. It's made me laugh. Uh, our friend posted on, our friend who does not play a lot of modern posted on Facebook group, and he said, MM2 or MM3, Trilands, Guildgates, Fetchlands, Signets. I like fixing just like the next guy, but it seems that it'd be taking up a ton of slots in the set. Would rather have money cards opened. What I want to say is, like, did you look at the spoiler? Yeah, yeah, I was like, so many sad violins for how how awful your relative was. You opened Might of Crows' Paths. Yeah, it's so so sad for all the commons and uncommons that you're going to open that are, like, reasonable cards to own. Like, did you see the spoilers? We got literally everything. Right. There's not a card... I mean, we're not going to do a full spoiler episode, I don't think, because... Or a full, a full set review episode, probably. Because yeah, we will. We'll do one next week. Like a full one? Yeah, yeah. We'll, or next week's episode will be about Master, Modern Masters. Okay, great. Because it feels like they've spoiled most of the relevant cards and like everything we wanted is there. Yeah, yeah. I, I think. I mean, we could talk about how wrong we were because we were really wrong. Well, they just they just designed it differently. But we, we'll get to that in another yeah, episode. Yeah. So um, anyway, that is the thing that's happening right now. Um, there's some cool modern stuff coming up on the horizon. Uh, well, do a little bit of modern news. Uh, SCG Modern Open Indianapolis was last week. Ad nauseum one, uh, and and you know that's sick. Yep. Um, it, it makes sense in this format because so much of it is now pretty creature, uh, anti creature, just because Death Shadow Zoo is. Herberware. So well, it's being not able to handle that makes it so you have to play pretty good re- creature removal. But just like we said, in case you missed the episode with Corey from two weeks ago, it's not really Death Shadow Zoo. It's like Death Shadow Jund, sort of. It's called, yeah, Death Shadow's Aggro is now what I guess what it's called. Yeah. It's not Zoo anymore. Since Gataxian Probe is banned, it's a different deck. But it is still a Death Shadow deck. Um, Death, the Shadow Death Shadow's spoiled. deck requires you to have a multitude of removal. That makes your deck pretty bad against Ad Nauseam, and now we live in the world we live in. Uh, Abzan got second. It seems like with uh, Fatal Push, it's been able to kind of yeah. take over from Jun because now the red isn't as strong as it used to be. They have kind of the tools they need to fight with Abzan. Bitten Eldrazi in third, uh, my favorite four-color deck. <laughs> um, my favorite thing, by the way, just just another um, another Modern Masters point, is that like it's a legitimately a set that they get to design for the sake of reprints because the card Death Shadow is such a weird card and that was spoiled as one of the reprint rares. It's mm-hmm. not even a mythic. Um, it, that's like such a strange card to throw into a set as a reprint, but it's just thrown in because you need it as a modern staple. And that's mm-hmm. great. That's so great that we have that now that we actually have a set that can just give us those cards, even though it has basically no relevance to any draft archetype. Um, yeah, so anyway. There were seven copies of it in the top 30, though. Yeah, I mean it's it's a big deal. Yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty well represented, and this is SUG, so it's a little bit different. Fatal Push was the most played card in the format after then after that Tarmogoyf, after that Inquisition of Kozilek, our our fave. Uh, uh, the card, the after card that, that we spoiled for the first time. When yeah, no one had that. ever seen it before. <laughs> we spoiled it this week. Uh, Death Shadow, Full Manor Mage, Street Wraith, Mistress Bobble, which seems to be the biggest miss from Masters of Modern or Modern Masters Three. Uh, Traverse the Ulvald and Surgical Extraction. Most of those are cards out of Death Shadow, though. Bobble... In fact, every single one of those cards is in Death Shadow. Has every single card been spoiled yet? No, they haven't revealed the full spoiler. No, Thursday. We'll see it all tomorrow morning. So it's possible Mistress Bobble's still around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there's, definitely a bi- like, there's definitely a big reveal. There's like one less... One more... A couple more good cards we're going to get tomorrow yeah. when they put the whole set online. Um, Sweet. They wanted it to be Damnation originally. The but big one. The big one. So you're like, oh man, they didn't reprint Damnation again, and then and they're gonna give it boom, to us. Damnation. But Blow no. our minds. Yep. So yeah. So that that's kind of the most of the news. There also we have a, a few announcements to make regarding uh, GP San Antonio. Yeah, definitely. So uh, GP San Antonio is coming up, and it's at the end of the month. It's Team Unified Modern, which is an awesome, awesome format that is rarely represented. Uh, in fact, is this the first time this has ever been a Grand Prix format? I think they've done it once before, right? Modern. Team Unified I'm Modern? Not, I think they've done it once, and I can't even promise that's true. Yeah, well, I feel like I have a memory of it. But in any case, it's exciting. It's extremely exciting for us as guys that talk about uh, deck building all the time and, and utilizing cards outside of just like you know the best 10 cards in Modern. Um, so the plan is, Kessler can't go, but I'm going to be going. 
okay. to, to the GP. Um, and I'm going to be playing. And I currently don't have teammates. Now, there are people we can reach out to, but I think it would be more fun for me to form a team with two of our listeners. And this is an idea that I have that we've talked about a little bit, and we're unsure exactly of how that would go or anything like that, but we pretty much have, you pretty much have, every modern card necessary just about to make the decks, which means, which means realistically, we could promise the decks to our teammates. We could bring, I could bring the cards and, and, and bring any two people right, that wanted to the come. Decks, yeah. um, so I think the idea would be, uh, anybody who anybody this is going to be a random drawing for people that are going. So uh, anybody who is going that donates to our Patreon currently is automatically signed up for this drawing. Who it would be? And, if they, the, and they and they would get they would get basically like ten entries per if you're a Patreon donation. Yes. And, and then the other way to get a, an entry as a possible uh, teammate of the Masters of Modern team uh, would be to go to our iTunes page and leave us a rating and a review. And that's all you have to do is you follow us on you have to follow us on Twitter. Give us a rating review on iTunes or be a Patreon subscriber. So with the two things or the one thing. And that's how you get entered. And you will have a higher likelihood of getting picked if you're a Patreon subscriber. So if you want to do that too, um, that's the easiest way to just get in. A minimum of, we'll say, a $5 donation, which is the deck tech level. I would say even like the two, the, I would say any level on the Patreon. Any level? Yeah, you get submitted. Yeah. Sure. Sounds yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. Sounds good to me. So that's the plan. Um, so when you, you listen have, to this you episode... Have, you have to already be going. So, so please... Realize we, we, we can't fly someone there. We can't, you know, we, we don't have the, the ability to accomplish that. But if you are going to be at San Antonio, we'd love, and you need, you want to be on Ben's team. Yeah. That, you, you will get official uh, Masters of Martin swag, though, as part of the team. You'll get, yeah, you'll, you'll get play mats, you'll get other cool stuff exactly and it'll be super fun we'll get to chat in the weeks leading up to the event come up with our plan together decide on the decks we want to play together um so that is something i'm really excited about and um our patreon currently is does okay for us it mostly makes us enough money to pay mike to edit our videos and occasionally replan our you know mics or cables and things like that yeah and so fun stuff yeah, exactly. If you guys, anybody who wants to donate to the Patreon as is, even if you're not going, it would be awesome. Yes, Patreon.com slash the MMCast. But if you do want to go and be a part of this, um, yeah, go do that. That would be really cool. It would help us put this together and, and have a place to stay when we're there and have a great time. So um, that's the plan. That's yeah. the current contest. It's not even really a contest. It's just an offer. It just would be really fun. I want to play with you guys. Well, there's like a raffle. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So there might be some like second place prizes we'll throw out there. So go and find us on Twitter at the MMCast. Go and find Kessler. At uh, Kess Wiley. And go and find me at Ben Bateman Media. And lastly, I'm actually, if you're listening to this right now on Friday, I'm in Vegas right now for a convention called Klexicon. It has to do with some characters on television from last year. It's a convention highlighting a positive LGBTQ rep on television. And I'm there doing press for that. So I would love to play some Vegas magic if people are around and want to play it all, like an FNM maybe or anything. I don't really know what time I'm going to have available, but hopefully some, and it would be cool to meet you guys. So hit me up at Ben, ba- ben Bateman Media and tweet at me, and maybe we'll get in touch. Yeah. Um, that is pretty much that as far as that goes. Other news? Well, we spoiled two cards earlier this week. That's the only thing I can think of. Uh, you can also make sure to check out Collected.Company. That's where we are. That's where we live. That's also where our sister podcast, The Command Zone, lives, and they released another Game Nights video, which is them. They do like a cool reality TV show about them all playing uh, Commander against each other. That's really sweet. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the big ones. Yeah, I think that cool. pretty much is the gist of it. All right, so let's get into the main subject of the episode. We have a special guest on today's episode, and that is Patrick Chapin. Uh, we're going to be having a discussion with Patrick about new card types being printed in Magic, evaluating the power levels of those card types, and how to properly evaluate them in terms of deck building and trying to take advantage of them. Um, so that is coming up in just a second. Hey, Patrick, how's it going? Welcome on the cast. Hey, how you guys doing? Doing great, man. Doing great. This is this is an episode we've had in mind for quite a while, and there's really no better person to talk to than the ultimate magic historian in Patrick Chapin. So thanks for coming on and talking to us about this. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. You know, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, awesome, awesome. So the idea for this segment is that uh, with Smuggler's Copter getting banned in standard and then seeing such a high density of Heart of Kieran's show up at the Pro Tour... We started thinking about the fact that in the early stages of any new card type, 
design doesn't seem to have the greatest grasp on power level yet. And you've seen this in the early days of planeswalkers, the early days of equipment. Um, so we want to talk about sort of all of those things. And I figured the best way to do it would be step by step. So the first thought would be, would you agree that planeswalkers, equipment, and now vehicles are the most relevant sort of new card types printed uh, in the, like, say, let's say modern competitive era of magic? Uh you're saying equipment, vehicles, and planeswalkers? Yeah, is there a, was there a really important new one that I'm missing that we like have had to... Really... Uh, I mean, there's tribal. I don't know if you consider that important. No, they never really pushed the tribal well, type past that set. Well, it's also kind of the reverse with tribal. The problem with tribal is more... Tribal is only relevant if it's always going to be relevant, and they kind of didn't make it always relevant, and then decided to just kind of leave it in the in the dust and i suppose that with this with vehicles we'll see what happens but they, they're pretty awesome so far so i wouldn't surprise me if vehicles come back later on in a big way so i guess i guess my first first question for patrick is uh, how do you feel about vehicles how do i feel about them yeah from a power level perspective how are they good for magic how they've affected standard where they kind of like place for you uh let's see so the from a power level perspective they are there's a there's a range of power levels uh, that I think um, that they are a little, I would guess that on the average, they are a little stronger than perhaps internally they realized. Um, I think that they wanted to be sure to make sure that the vehicles were good enough and they erred on the side of pushing some hard enough to be sure that they showed up. In terms of the quality of design or if they're good for magic, I think that, first of all, it's there's a very different bar for what you want to be omnipresent versus what makes uh, for a fun six-month six vacation or a two-year vacation. And uh, I think that in the, the full range of experiences uh, for magic vehicles, uh, it's a very ambitious thing they tried to do, and I think that they pulled it off very well. I think that the play experience of vehicles is good. I think that they are, in many ways, it's, it's so it's weird, right? Because they're kind of equipment, and they're kind of creatures, but they also are a little bit of what, you know, they're half and half of kind of equipment and vehicle, I mean, equipment and creatures, and have a little bit different of a play experience than either one. Uh, I wouldn't want vehicles to be super prevalent all the time the way that they are in this block. But I think that, like, for instance, when Mirrodin unveiled uh, equipment, there was just an there's just a huge, huge, huge amount of it. And I think that they've gotten into a good balance with there being different amounts of equipment from set to set, sometimes not at all, sometimes a bunch, sometimes only a very little, but not just tons and tons of it. Uh, I would guess that the correct amount of vehicles is probably less than the amount of equipment by a fair bit, but I think that they could revisit it some. How parasitic do you feel like the design of vehicles are? Like, obviously, you have cards that reference an effect when you crew something, um, but it's you know beyond those cards that really do make the vehicles better. Just standing on their own, saying mixing with other cards in modern and whatnot, um, do you feel like you sort of need to play with the cards vehicles were designed to play with, or that they're strong enough to exist as we go forward in Magic with just generic cards? Uh, I, yeah, I guess they're. If you're say, like, ha, are there any vehicles strong enough to play with going forward? The absolute the answer would be absolutely yes. It's they don't really rely on the synergies as much as they are raw rate like they're they're just like equipment some of the equipment you're only going to play if you have incentives but some of the equipment is just so good you'll just play with it anyway and i think that like uh things like smuggler's copter and heart of kieran are so good that you can just play with them uh because of how efficient they are so definitely and i and i i, I think I want to end our conversation about the future of vehicles in modern and talking about the, the banning of copter and everything like that. So let's jump back to... Or at least save it for later in the episode. Yeah, exactly, because I think that's the, most, that's the most interesting sort of thing for modern, because planeswalkers and vehicles exist as possibilities and have existed as possibilities in modern. But when Mirrodin was originally announced, and, and you said they printed so many pieces of equipment, 
Um, that was like a really big deal. Equipment, just as a new card type, it was unfamiliar how it worked. The fact that you could only equip at sorcery speed sort of took a minute to wrap your mind around because it looked like an activated ability on a card. And yet you obviously had cards like, you had cards like Skull Clamp and you had the original cycle of swords that were very, very, very powerful compared to some commons and even uncommons that were just not even close to the same power level, followed by obviously GTA in the next block. Um, how do you think that changed magic? How would you compare that to vehicles? Uh, how did the printing of equipment change magic? Yeah, just in terms of like them wrapping their head around designing something so new and innovative. Um, and like, like obviously the, the scope there in terms of skull clamp all the way up to Shuko, um, I, I feel like they didn't quite have their head wrapped around how to design it in the beginning. And that was evident in the swinginess of cards like skull clamp. Um, how would you compare those two things? Like, do you think vehicles came out the gate much, much, much more balanced than equipment did? I would say that, uh, see, it's kind of just, it's, it's tricky figuring out the right way to answer the question accurately, because from my perspective, equipment are just licids. Right. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. It, like this is, uh, and the licids themselves, I mean, if you keep going back, it's, it's, they're just, uh, for instance, there was like uh, there were a number of artifacts in the first year that Magic was made that had activated abilities where you tap the artifact, paid some mana, and gave a bonus to your creature. You know, like you could tap and pay three mana to give your creature plus two, plus zero until end of turn. Right. And the idea of having permanents that can buff your other creatures t uh, for a little while, and they can only buff one creature at a time. And when you, because I mean, if you go all the way back, there were, there was Bad Moon in the beginning, right? And Crusade and things right. like that, Orcish Oriflam. But as, uh, if very early in Magic, they started experimenting with other permanents that could sit in play that you could choose to use to power up your creature, but you could only power up one creature at a time with right. them. You know, and it's, they're all just variations of that same type of experience. And, uh, I, I, from my perspective, equipment are just the, I don't know, seventeenth version of that mechanic that they made. They, it's not act, it's 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 a subtype. It's not even like really a, a new card type, but it is a new set of puzzles because the the way that like the the way they ask you to balance your resources changed a little bit. You know, like it's it it is still just an artifact that you pay a cost. And that guy is powered up, you know, that, that creature is powered up for some period of time until you pay, a co the, pay the cost again to move it to something else. And it has the attribute of not going away if the creature dies, you know. So it, it just has, I don't know, it, to me, they're, they're similar and that the real reason that uh, equipment weren't balanced better when they first came out is the same reason that Arcbound Ravager wasn't balanced when it first came out. There was just a that was just during a period of time in which uh, there were not the final design resources and the technology for how to balance sets that were uh, that were necessary for the types of designs they were trying to explore. Yeah. You know, I think this has happened at a few different other points in Magic's history as well. And uh, right now we see planeswalkers. I mean, sorry, we see uh, vehicles not exactly being in the exact, you know, in the perfect spot. They're, they're, they're in a pretty, de they did a pretty decent job, but I think that right now uh, we're seeing a little bit of a downswing with regards to uh, power level balance and that we're going to see a, a big improvement a, a couple of years from now. There's just a long leg because of how, you know, how, er how long ago they had to design all these cards. Right. I actually would argue that Planeswalkers are a great example of the success out the gate. Uh, if you look at the first Planeswalkers, Jace Bellerin, Garrick Wildspeaker, Chandra Nalar, Liliana Vess, and, and uh, Johnny Goldmane, that's a pretty reasonable mix of Planeswalkers, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of a, there's a there's an agreement in the community that the, the initial five were just fantastic. I mean, that was well balanced. They each had, other than Chandra, they each had moments where they were heavily played in tournament play. They're also mostly almost all of them, other than Chandra, again, are, are casual favorites in different ways. They like kind of hit every 
spot on the mark that they needed to. And I think it's interesting. Oh, see, I played Chandra a fair bit, actually. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. Maybe I, that's weird. Yeah, I, I knew I knew you were going to say that. Um <laughs> No, I think it's interesting if you look at those cards too. You know, we did the bracket uh, kind of recently, I don't know, a few months ago of the top. We ranked every planeswalker, and it seemed like when we got we were getting into the top twenty, I think Garrick Wildspeaker would made it the top ten for us. I think Jace Valerian was top twenty for us. Well, and, and I also think like planeswalk. I think every new permanent type vehicles and, and planeswalkers they did really well in the beginning. I think that one of the reasons is that there was only five. They had, you know they had five. They like tested those really well with equipment and vehicles they've it's more of a shotgun blast of here's 30 different designs we can come right. out with because this is our new exciting thing and we want it to be more of a common thing than necessarily planeswalkers were but if you like extrapolate planeswalkers for the next three years like you get a much more swingy quality control kind of level where you get stuff like Elsbeth, liliana the veil jace the mind sculptor alongside sarkon vol six mana chandra um yeah, uh, you know, four mana Nissa, who was really good at the time more because the elves deck than she herself was. But you know, you get when you have so many knobs, which you have with equipment and you have with vehicles, it's hard to. It takes time to master exactly the best way to kind of keep them fair and to, from dominating a format. Yeah. So, yeah. I, oh, go ahead. No, no, please. What I, what I was going to ask was, so you know, on top level podcast with you and Flores, you guys will do when you have spoilers and, and new sets. You'll sort of do the, the walkthrough discussion of, well, you know, for this card, you get this rate, it could work like this. And, and I've heard it's a very, very analytical, very, uh, like, processed way of talking about these things. So going back just to, for a second to the sort of unbalanced nature of those really, really swingy equipment, do you remember looking at, say, Skull Clamp and saying, like, that is totally unfair. I'm going to play that as a four of no question if I'm allowed to. Or was it sort of like looking at Copter where everybody's like, yeah, that's probably one of the best new cards we don't really know how it's going to work, but we'll try it out. But I'll bet you that's pretty good. I mean, was there a difference there? Yeah, I mean, it. so it's a little surreal. Uh, the, so I'm coming from a little bit of a funny position on Skull Clamp. Uh, I was at Wizards of the Coast when Skull Clamp was initially designed. Oh. And suggested the whole drawing two cards. As part. opposed to one? But at the time, it cost two to... Uh, two to a cast and three to equip oh. and gave the creature plus one plus two. <laughs> oh man. And, and, uh, and then I had to leave and, uh, during, uh, the, you know, during the, uh, later part of Mirrodin and, uh, I still remember them, uh, you know, they, we were still doing some stuff by mail and I remember them uh, sending me a message about the update to skull clamp and it was like, uh, uh Oh yeah, right. <laughs> right. I mean, that's what I mean. Like it's like, uh Oh, in terms of that's, that's kind of the whole point of this discussion is you talk about those planeswalkers and how well designed they are, how sort of three mana, like Jace Valerian, like that's such an, that's such an interesting yet simple magic card. Um, I also think like Skull Clamp's a bad example of like bad knobs because it's like it's a very uniquely it's not really an equipment it does something else like yeah, I, I right, mean, like right, more right. like Gta or the the protection swords are more I think comparable to I mean Gta is another one and 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 Chopter yeah Gta is another one when you look at Gta I think it's a little harder to evaluate Gta as totally unfair right out the gates but and then like you play with it at a pre-release and you're like oh yeah but that card's <laughs> nuts right uh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that uh, Umazawa's Gite. If the question is, is Umazawa's Gite nuts? The answer is yes. There <laughs> yeah. are few cards that it, there are very few cards in the modern era as nuts of design as Umazawa's Gite. The convergence of being not even in the right zip code, uh, <clears throat> not even the right zip code of power level, combined with an atrocious play pattern. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is a nuts design. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, but it, what's uh, what, what's interesting about GTA is like it has that same thing that Copter has, where it, it's effective attacking or blocking, right? Well, yeah, but it it's really it does it. It's about the the rate because a lot of really really good cards can't, don't attack and block, uh, and there are a lot of cards that attack and block that aren't very good. The fact that this one does both is secondary to the 
numbers written on the card and the, <laughs> the, the variety of options that the card gives you and the relative utility in the context that the card is legal. It, the, the, like Smuggler's Copter, I think Umezawa's Shite uh, is a, it, it, its existence is the convergence of three different uh, risks that can all go bad sometimes with magic designs. The first is that uh, when you make late changes, there can be consequences that you don't always see. Umezawa's Jite was never play tested a single game. You you know this from you know the story that I know this. For, I know for sure. It literally got <laughs> changed last minute, and it was a speculative because the see the thing is that Umezawa's Jite originally didn't have the minus uh, the minus one minus it didn't have the minus one minus one ability. Right. It had get a uh, get a mana. Like it was like a lotus petal of story. It was like get a mana instead, but that didn't work within the rules. Um, like there were some complex reasons why they didn't want to have a mana ability. You couldn't basically they would have had to list it as two different abilities because you couldn't mix a mana ability and a non mana ability on a modal activated ability at the time. And so they last minute they're like, okay, well if you can't have a lotus petal, why don't we just change it to something safe like minus one minus one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, and th there's like a history. Of, like Batter Skull is the same deal where they're at the last minute they changed it from, I believe it was like five or eight mana to make a germ token that it's attached to instead of returning it to your hand, um, and then uh, even up till the the felt the new guardian or felt sovereign the new cat yeah right. combo the where it originally was artifacts and creatures and they're like let's just make it permanence to make revolt better and to make it kind of function a little bit more cleaner and then they like miss the fact that it comboed with Sahili. yeah and we always talk about we always talk about this like what well, seems like there's got to just be you know a monkey at a typewriter being paid to essentially just like go through every card ever and be like well how does it play with this and how does it play with this and is that a problem and it's like the reality is no matter how many people you hired no matter how specific the process would be you'd still always miss something it's it would be impossible what? to not well, yeah, you can. You're you're always going to miss stuff at some point, but there are a variety of things that you could have as part of your process that would cut off a great number of these. You know, from learning from some of the mistakes in the past. For instance, uh, the list is actually not that long of game of combo engines in Magic, and if whenever there is an engine that has one type of input and one type of output, there are potentials for loops. And you could actually just compare all of the cards that only have one input and give an output to see if there's anything that produces uh, the outputs, the thing that they need as an input. You know, like for instance, Felidar Guardian, uh, its input is entering the battlefield and its output is blinking something. Right. But the thing about, but the blinking things is like copying things where it breaks lots of other things that only have one type of input. Well, right. The but number anyway, of, that, yeah, yeah. I was, I was okay. going to say the number of cards and, and you knew this cause you guys talked about it on your show, but the number of cards that do an instantaneous blink as opposed to an end of turn blink and, and reference permanent is extremely small. Like there's almost none that have ever been printed. So like, that's one of those things when you less look at 10. that, what less than 10, Oh, I think significantly less than 10. I, you, you have things that blink creatures you have things that blink, like what? Does cloud shift blink a permanent, or is cloud? Yeah, there's like a couple, but again, that's a spell, so it's like. You oh, can't. you mean creatures that blink creatures? Yeah, I mean, it's oh, almost. Yeah, yeah. It's just almost a thing that doesn't exist. So, like you're saying, uh, Patrick, about the you know the input and the output. When you think about that, okay, where does this fit, and and what does it fall in line with? You're you're absolutely right. You know, the testing should be a little more refined there because they should be able to immediately say, okay, yeah, this this combos with another card that's going to be in standard, and it's. Totally unique, and that other card is totally unique. But I mean, that's the whole printing things you haven't printed before. That's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, I, I, I think that with uh, Skull Clamp, um, Umazawa's GTA Smuggler's Copter, if you'll notice, a lot of these things, it's not necessarily that they are new card types so much as they're artifacts. And that brings me to the second of the well. That brings me to the second of the the, the three big risks here. There's a long term, a lo just a long, 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 long time systemic 
failing uh, on the development side for artifacts when they are explicitly pushing artifact theme blocks or sets or mechanic or whatever it is. Because uh, normally artifacts exist in this space in which there is an opportunity cost that you are getting color pie bleeds and versatile utility, but at the expense of efficiency. And every single time they do any sort of remotely artifact block, whether it's Mirrodin, Scars of Mirrodin, uh, Aether Revolt, and Kaladesh, there's a similar problem that keeps happening where they're like, well, this is an artifact set. I must be sure that the artifacts are really good. And when you make the artifact so pushy that it's at a more efficient rate than the colored card, the problem actually spirals out of control because it no longer has the fundamental limiting factor of uh, each color having strengths and weaknesses the way that the game is balanced around. And that's why I think actually the, 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 the development problems you're describing are actually primarily systemic failings on the development side to balance artifact mechanics. And every time they make a new artifact mechanic and they want to show it off, whether it's affinity or equipment or vehicles or whatever it is, metalcraft, doesn't matter. Every time there are always some amount of problems that go along with when they say, oh, we must make sure that we push some artifact or artifact enabling theme enough to be in high tier one. Well, yeah, I mean, and even if you look at Magic Origins with, you know, uh, Hangerback Walker and now Walking Ballista, when they a push artifact has the potential, because it can be played in any deck, to, to kind of break down what Magic is supposed to be about. I mean, and up to the extent that I, I generally argue that green is the second most powerful color in Magic, but one of the reasons it's been looked down so ill-fondly over the years is because the thing that it's best at is, you know, ramping mana. And for the first 10 years of Magic's history, artifacts were what was doing that at a higher rate. You had the Moxes, you had Black Lotus, you had Signets, you had whatever you had. Talismans. And Talismans, you had things taking away from green's main strength, and then once they kind of pulled that away, green was able to kind of be like, oh no, we're the ramp color, this is what we're supposed to be good at. Land of War Elves is obviously really good, and, and, and same as Birds of Paradise. And so now, when you get into artifact sets, taking away other colors' strengths is what makes those colors weak. Same, I mean, even if you look at Battle for Zendikar block, green was the worst draft color in BFC draft because all of the Eldrazi did it better than them. They had bigger creatures and they ramped better than Green was doing. And to that point, uh, Patrick, uh, what you were just saying, and I'll just uh, say this really quickly and you can jump in, is that it's not even just artifacts. It's pushing colorless because we saw what happened when they, pushed, agree. When they pushed colorless and all of a sudden you, it was like, oh, the downside of playing, you know, pain lands in your Eldrazi deck. It was like, okay, well now in modern, we're going to build the most broken modern deck that's like ever been built because you can just smash colorless cards and it's so easy. That's yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is that the if you look at all the different times, because it's not really about artifacts, it's about colorless, whether it's strip mine with Mishra's factory, if it's uh, dismember mutagenic growth and gut shot, if it's a mental misstep, any of that stuff, right? Gitaxian probe, if it's uh, any amount of the colorless, the Eldrazi, it's always when they push the things that break the existence of a color pie. Their problem, the things just start to break down. And the uh, as far as the battle for Zendikar, I would actually, I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's like uh, only tangential to the point, but I'm actually not convinced that it is the Eldrazi's fault that Green was the weakest in battle for Zendikar. I actually think that perhaps the greatest the greatest fault was the fact that. At Wizards of the Coast, during the development of that set, the best drafter on their final design team loved drafting green. And as oh, a sure. result, he was skewing the, the, the results internally, and they balanced around him existing. And they ended up doing things like, for instance, you know that card that makes two 1-1 Scions? It costs three instead of two. Hmm. And so, like, I think that you could have just changed a couple of the numbers and easily green would have been the best regardless even if you didn't power up its acceleration even if the eldrazi were better at that jam the you could just make the numbers bigger like for instance in modern 
Tarmogoyf, Grim Flayer, Knight of the Reliquary, uh, Scavenging Ooze, uh, Primeval Titan. I think there's a really good case to be made for Green having the best fatties, you know, if you set aside like weird combo creatures. I'd I'd currently argue that Green is the best color in modern, but yeah, I agree. (laughs) Right, yes, yeah. I think that's, I think you can make a pretty good argument about that. I also think that it's a little strange the idea of holding on to Green as though it's not a strong color, because at this point, Green has been a strong, one of the strongest colors for so long over the life I mean, Magic's 20, what, 24 years old? Yeah. There's been a really good portion of that period of time where green has been quite good. And even if it was somewhat maligned before, uh, some of the green cards have aged pretty well from the old days, you know? Well, yeah, I, I, we always talk about how funny it is when you go back to look at the way the cards were designed in the first five years. And uh, some things are so out of whack, but you go look at, like, you know, cockatrice was a rare, right? Or like, um, you look at some of the green cards and the way that green was utilized, you know, a card like craw worm, which I guess is a common anyway, but if you look at like what gets printed now, um, cockatrice actually, I think is a really smart rare because at the, for what they were, what Garfield was trying to do at the time, he was trying to suggest that green, it's not common for green to get flying. And in fact, that's part of the reason why he made scripts, right? And script sprite being a one one, get and then birds of paradise being a zero one. Like, but he wanted to show this is not usual. Green's flyers, when you look at like uh, birds of paradise, cockatrice, they're all rare except for uh, script sprite, which was intentionally weak. Right. You know, right. small, small. Not it wasn't actually that inefficient compared to some of the other creatures. But yeah, cockatrice legal and modern, by the way. Um, but uh, no, it's so a, for those who don't know, green, green, three, flying, two, four. That for all intents and purposes has death touch. Yeah, for yeah. non walls. It's I mean it's it's an actual. It's not a modern playable card, but it has some elements that would make it at least somewhat interesting in modern because it has four toughness. But in any case, <laughs> and it's and it costs five, so it survives fatal push, both fatal push and lightning bolt. That's true. That card's tech. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of <laughs> like a vampire nighthawk. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's a vampire nighthawk, but it costs two more, and instead of having life link it doesn't kill walls <laughs> and it has an extra point of tough it has an extra point of tough you know yeah, 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 yeah. it's lightning bolt proof and it can't kill walls so so okay like so let's just go through the ages really quickly if you look at if you look at the the uh, pieces of equipment that were printed in Ravnica block the third time that they could print equipment it's like Rakdos right knife and like, um, I wish I had the list directly in front of me here, but it's, you know, there's like six pieces of equipment or something like that. Uh, and it's pretty clear that, you know, they shot equipment out of a cannon in the first block. They designed one really flashy piece of equipment for the block following. Like, okay, we want this to be a thing and it's a legendary. So we're going to do one really good one. And it's totally unbalanced. By the time they did it the third time, it was like. What? what which, what are you speaking of? I, I'm saying GTA. GTA was like the one really flashy piece of equipment in, in, uh, Kamigawa block. Am I forgetting another incredible piece of equipment in that block? I mean, I don't know. I, I thought that uh, Tetsumesa, the Dragon's Fang or whatever, was like uh, a more compelling, uh, like more flashy. Umuzawa's Jite was just like costed wrong. Well, you know, the, like what, what Go- is, Godo Bandit Warlord, you know, he go- when Godo Bandit Warlord goes and gets te- uh, the Dragon Fang or whatever it is, uh, let me see. What 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 all? Because I thought there were like a few different pieces of equipment in Kamigawa block. Yeah, are you saying just in terms of like the power level? Yeah, no, that's what I'm trying to sort of get at. Is like thinking about the way we remember these and the way they were evaluated out the gates. It's like they didn't they didn't give us like a bunch of cards with a really competitive rate that will go down as legendary in the next set, right? Like the first, you can at least say that the first block of of Mirrodin block has the two swords. And skull clamp, like just alone, those three cards are like iconic and incredible, and played to this day. Plating. In and plating, yeah. So you have like <laughs> you have four really that are like unbelievable bone cards. Splitters. Yeah, bone splitter's good, but I mean it's really good. It's, I mean it's unprintable in any draft format, but yeah. Yeah. So, but it's I really, guess it's sick, but yeah. <laughs> so the point I tried to make here is, uh, the, by the third time they did it, it seems like they had figured it out. So I wanted to sort of move that thought to planeswalkers next and think about a little bit okay we all agree the first five were great now the next the next set of them five 
was just at what? Five Tezzeret, uh, Elsbeth, yeah. Sarkinval, Nicobolus, yeah. Ajani Vengeant. Two of those are on the list of best planeswalkers ever, and one of them is on a list of people's favorite planeswalker, and if it costs less than eight and cool and a man was it just a better card in the exact same cost, would be considered one of the best planeswalkers whatever ever. Are any of the original five as good as Elspeth, Ajani Vengeant, or Tezzeret? Yeah, Garrick, Jace. What do you think, Patrick? Are any of the original five as powerful as or these. as good of designs? As powerful. As, How would you rank as those As powerful eight? as... The, wait, which eight? Aren't there? T- you're speaking of ten, though, right? So, so let's rank the ten. I just for I was sort of throwing out the Sarkin because he's kind of sorry, Chavin. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, between the two, which are which one would you say is the best designed ones set, and which one is the more powerful set? Uh, for full sets, yeah, five and five. I mean, like, I mean, I like, I think, uh, I think Ajani, Vengeant, Elspeth. Uh, and Jace Bolaren are in another league compared to, um, I mean, it also depends on what kind of a context you're talking. Sure. But like, uh, Elspeth, I think is the strongest of those. T- I think Elspeth is the strongest of those 10 and Ajani Vengeant is the other, I don't know. Ajani Vengeant and Elspeth are both like, they're two of the, they're two very high on the list, and I think Jace Bolaren would be in my top ten most powerful list uh, historically. Um, I think that uh, beyond that, uh, I guess Garuk would be probably number. Garuk would be number four. Is that right? And then like it'd be Garuk uh, or Tezzeret. Like Tezzeret's the only, and that's format dependent. And the five cost Tezzeret. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I I I think the five cost Tezzeret's not particularly pushy like i think the five cross tesseret is like that it gets played in vintage at times is really just a function of the design of the card it was designed to be used with time vaults so that there would be a planeswalker in vintage sure sure it's, it's not like the card on its own was strong like it, it, i mean it's i guess it's stronger than Liliana of uh, Liliana Vess, but it's and it's stronger than a Johnny Goldman, but I don't think it's I I think it might even be weaker than Nico Bolas just in terms of rate. I don't know. Okay, interesting, because I mean, and then I guess the the third part of that conversation, which is doesn't really need to be documented very closely because it's been talked about to death is that the third set, of course, introduced Jace the Mind Sculptor, like the strongest planeswalker ever printed and one of the five best magic cards ever printed, probably. Um, so they seem to sur- f- five. There's like a power nine ahead of it, and a power oh, okay. eight, and yeah. time I, vault. And- I, I, you're right. You're right. If you really want to put, if you want, if you modern want to magic test. But yeah, in terms of cards that have been printed in like the modern and even overextended era of magic, I would say that Jace the Mind Sculptor is like. I mean, how high would you put it, Patrick? Uh, well, I can tell you the last time I did a list, like I had to do a list. Uh, just a couple years ago of the 100 most powerful magic cards ever made based on uh, rate yeah, and, uh, fe- you know, efficiency. And Jace the Mind Sculptor was in my top 25 all time. Yeah, and so- my top 25 includes Black Lotus, uh, Five Moxes, Soul Ring, Mana Crypt, Ancestral Recall, Time Walk, Demonic Tutor. It's a really tough list to get into. All cards printed and- in 1993 and then a card printed no, in 1993. 19- <laughs> Yeah. I, th- I think that Tinker and Yogmos will, and uh, I think Tinker and Yogmos will should be on the list. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. Yeah. But it's confusing what your what your metric is, you know. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think, and then past the third time they had done it. I mean, you did have in that third set of six in the third block there. You know, Gideon Jura is a really nicely designed planeswalker. He's he's a super solid cre- uh, planeswalker with a great rate. Jace is way over the top. And the rest in that block. I think Gideon is way over the top. You think he's crazy, crazy yeah, powerful? I think, yeah, I agree. Gideon, yeah, I think Gideon Jura, I mean, you can do that kind of thing sometime. It's not like there's a right cost for every card. The There's like a, there's different curves of rate and a, of power, uh, of like mana efficiency, depending on what the purpose of the thing is. And uh, I think that sometimes you can make, uh, there are cards that need a per- that have a purpose that requires them to be stronger than other cards, 
Uh, I think that Gideon Jura is stronger than I would normally want to make a card like that. But I think that in context, it makes a lot of sense because you can also de design to the world where you just are making things like Bloodbraid Elf and Vengevine and Jace the Mind Sculptor and Raging Ravine. I mean, you can design to that world too if you want. There's different curves. It's just that uh, I think that part of the reason they let things get so inflated at that point is that when they were making some of the development decisions during that time period and the couple years leading up to it, magic was really struggling. And the, the reason that they were inflating was that there is, uh, you can subsidize, uh, you can subsidize design by making your new cards more powerful than the old ones so that people stop playing with the old ones and play with the new ones. So like, if you think that your new designs are more fun, you can just keep upping that. Now it grows out of control really, really quickly, but if you think that magic's dying, which at that time period they did, because they were responding to Darksteel, and a couple years after Darksteel, Magic was doing terrible. Magic fell off a cliff, and part of the reason they pulled back so much on uh, the equipment is that every single thing that was introduced during Mirrodin and Darksteel and Fifth Dawn, every single thing going on, they tried to walk back and they tried to tone down by the time they actually could once they saw how devastated the Magic community was in terms of the people playing, the numbers of players. And it takes them about, they're on like a two-year lag. So that's part of the reason why you see the outrageously powerful equipment in Mirrodin relative to like historical, you know, where the, it's sort of settled into in general. And then why you see two years later they chill out. It's because... They started chilling out the second they saw what was happening from Darksteel. Right. And it took them that long. Because some of the, I mean, Kamigawa, I would argue, has a number of other busted equipment. Like, I think that Shuko is just completely indefensible. Right. But I mean, in the all-time. All it was times, too yeah. late. It was too late for them to do anything. And uh, the, the latest they could do anything at all was when they printed Kataki. But by then, it was too late. The uh, when, With the Planeswalkers, though, what was happening is a, a little bit the reverse. You see, when they made Jace, Balearing, Garuk, Liliana, and so on, those cards had been designed and developed and were an ongoing process. When I, when I was there in 2002, they were working on what would eventually become Planeswalkers. And that's like... That's many years out. That's like, what is that? That's like, I don't know, five, six years earlier... And the uh, the next couple years between Lorwyn's release and then all the way up to uh, Zendikar block, during that period of time, they were operating under the assumption that magic was dying. And they were trying to do whatever they could to prop the game up, to, to help rebuild the game, to, to rework the game. And the people who worked on uh, specifically M10, Battle for Zendikar, and World Wake, they saved Magic to so great a degree because of a combination of New World Order and recapturing the flavor and understanding what was really fun about Magic. And then I think that by the time that Zendikar came out, they actually could see, oh my god, okay, Magic's turning around, things are going really, really well and so on, but they eventually had to pull back a little bit on the power level because yeah, it wasn't sustainable to keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And Jace the Mind Sculptor is what happens when sometimes you try to make the best card, like they tried to make a Babe Ruth. Right. They tried just, they, they aimed for a literal 10 out of 10 of what was possible, and then they turned out to be a little wrong and aimed too high. And that's how you ended up with a card that uh, is so just, it's not even in the zip code of okay. Right. It's totally, yeah, it's like, I agree with you. It's hilarious. You, you called Shuko indefensible. Uh, that is the most, that is like the most like meta statement in the world. It's funny. Cause if you're like the brand new player who's just gotten in magic and you go and you look in your database, what is Shuko? You're going to compare Shuko to Jace the Mind Sculptor and just like, scratch your head but obviously you're referencing the fact that it has a unique ability that turns on other things and is one of those loop engines you're talking about well it, it's 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 not 
It's not, yeah, it's not even just those combos. It's the fact that you should not ever print zero cost activated abilities with no cost, with no, with, if there's no input, it's already just, it's already indefensible given where magic was by the time that Shuko got printed. But uh, the Jace the Mind Sculptor, I actually think it's an interesting uh, example though of how easy it is in retrospect for people to talk about Jace the Mind Sculptor as being obviously incredible or busted. You gotta remember, at the time, people didn't even think Jace the Mind, there were so many people who thought that Jace the Mind Sculptor wasn't good. I mean, it did, how long did it take? Three, two, three weeks in standard before the card totally caught on? Something, something uh, like no, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I mean, the first Pro Tour where it was legal, it did very well. You know, like it, it, it top aided immediately, but it wasn't particularly heavily played. And it there was a widespread defining. consensus in the community that it wasn't, it wasn't that strong. And then after the Pro Tour, it started surging, and it, it grew and grew and grew and grew and started becoming just, you know, played in every single format over the course of a few months. But it took them actually playing with it. It's not like you read the card and know how good it is. It's not as confusing as, like, for instance, Necropotence. Right, right. It's funny. You <laughs> you talk about the, the few weeks, you know, the Pro Tour, and then it takes a little while before people get it. And you're talking about something as egregiously powerful as Jace. It's like the same thing as when Tarmogoyf was printed, and it took a few weeks, a month or so, before people really figured out that, like, you know, it's it's a it's a significantly better card than Ren's Run Vanquisher in the Elf decks. It's just a better card. You should be playing that. It's almost like in the in the zombie movies when the outbreak starts happening, and you see on the news that you know, oh, there's crazy stuff happening in another city, and then it's like, well, actually, we're just in the middle of a zombie outbreak. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> dying. Like this is the thing that's happening right now. You know, it may have seemed like something weird was going on in another part of the world, but the world's caught up. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's it's like this recurring thing where despite the fact that Magic's been around for 24 years, people just keep falling for the same joke. They keep looking at cards through the lens of the previous context instead of attempting to understand the rate of the card. The efficiency, the rate of the card is like how much output, how much ability to influence the game are you getting for the cost. Right. And uh, if if a card has a substantially higher rate than existing cards, there is opportunity even when the card doesn't already have an existing home. And in fact, that's how you know which things to look at beforehand. You can just look at which things are giving you more output. Uh, I don't know. I just... I. I think that uh, people over and over and over again get too hung up on the specific context in a moment, like Jace the Mind Sculptor being printed at a time in which, uh, in which Bloodbraid Elf and Lightning Bolt exist. Right. It's like, okay, contextually it has weaknesses against these two cards, but also these are two absurdly powerful cards, and there will not always be exactly these two cards. Yeah, this is a modern podcast. One of those cards is banned. The other one's the historically the most played card in the history of the format. So, you know, I think we're talking about a pretty strong standard by comparison. Um, yes. So the last point, and what you just said, is everybody keeps falling for the same, you know, the same joke over and over again. That's kind of what inspired this conversation in the first place, was, you know, they printed these two, this, this one piece of equipment in Smuggler's Copter. They followed it up in the next set with Heart of Kieran. And I said from the very beginning... I really felt like Smuggler's Copter was a, was busted. I was like, that card, that feels like modern power level. I know it's a 3-3, but, you know, it's that just feels good to me. Then it gets banned in standard, and all of a sudden I'm looking around, I'm like, all right, guys, I, I really feel like we're missing something here. There's an opportunity. And like we just saw with the Death Shadow Jun deck, which is almost just becoming like a legacy deck in modern, right? It was there forever. It just took a while for people to sort of figure out, okay, that's actually what we should be doing. Um I kind of have this feeling that that's going to be the same thing with these two pieces of these these two pieces of these vehicles, and I kind of wonder what the future of those cards and then vehicles in general in the next in the next sets they print them whenever that will be looks like uh, as it relates to this whole conversation we've just had about equipment and planeswalkers. Like, what do vehicles look like going forward? How good are these cards going to be in modern? Well, out of the, I mean, I, I don't know for sure whether there are going to be any vehicles uh, outside of Kaladesh or Aether Revolt for the time being. I'm not sure. Maybe there will be, maybe there won't. But as speaking only to the vehicles in these two sets, um, 
the 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 challenge here is that vehicles require a creature to crew them right and the the best vehicles smuggler's copter and heart of kieran i mean to begin with smuggler's copter is already showing up in modern it's just it's not like a, a dominating card it's it's a little bit more fringe like it, it there's it's occasionally used in some affinity decks as i'm sure you know but it's not it's not exactly the primary it's not the main way it's very fringe and probably not the uh the the correct way to even be playing affinity at the moment but uh the problem with smuggler's copter is that it it benefits you for playing with one one creatures and then it rewards you for things like not only do you have to already be able to attack with your 1-1 creature, which is a disproportionately large cost in modern, because in modern, all of, because of the fact that all the cards are so much more powerful, on the average, everything has bigger stats. Right. And so there are less incidental ways to crew a copter without losing more damage. You know, like Thraven Inspector, for instance, is so strong and standard, but it's just not in the same league as Goblin Guide. And, uh, oh, good. I was going to say, that's where you, but I mean, that's sort of what I'm talking about. I, I agree with you. There's a lot of very, very smart people that play Magic and, and spend all their time designing. And um, I don't mean to sort of harp on the same cards on this podcast because I talk about my favorite cards so much. But, you know, I like, I see synergies. I see like a synergy between Grand Architect and Smuggler's Copter where I think, okay, that's a pretty interesting and clever way to use one power on a very powerful creature. I think about, you know, a card like Delver of Secrets that's a 1-1 one, one that you hope to flip, but sometimes you don't. You know, there's a really good 1-1. One, one. Um, I, I think there's opportunities, and I, I, just, I just have this gut feeling that we're going to see more out of these vehicles in modern, and I just think it's a door people haven't really opened all the way yet. Like, there's just this, people turn their nose up because they're standard cards, you know? Until they've rotated out of standard, and you sort of have to think, like, outside the box, how clever am I being? They're just such prominent cards right now. It's almost like people don't like playing with the most prominent cards in standard in modern, unless they have to. Uh, so I would say that there is definitely a long historical trend of people being confused about standard cards that are good in modern. They don't realize that, like, I mean, certain things that are just different new twists on the same old joke they'll they'll get into like snapcaster mage was easy to figure out because it was like eternal witness right but uh but blood braid elf was very confusing at first to people in in powered formats they didn't they didn't fully get it um elspeth's son's champion another great example uh yeah. the I, and i think that uh definitely there's some amount of people are resistant to vehicles in modern because it's something new and different and they're not thinking in the right framework yet. And partly because there's so many weird niche interactions that haven't even been discovered yet. I mean, modern has more interactions than there are atoms in the universe. So it's, and that's not even an exaggeration. It's literally that many interactions that you can't already know how everything's going to interact with everything else. And so somebody getting outside that box and uh, exploring a little bit um, eventually is going to find more uh, ways to take advantage of a card that has such an incredible rate like Smuggler's Copter. The thing I would note, though, is that you got to be careful with... Uh, I guess you don't have to. I mean, I guess who really even cares how accurate these type of predictions are? But there is a... We care when we're making predictions about our own, like when we're holding ourselves accountable, and we, we want to look for falsifiable claims and not just a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, cause like will smugglers copter ever be good? Yes. And if all you want is to wait until <laughs> smugglers copter is eventually good and say, see, I knew four years ago that eventually smugglers copter would be good. Definitely. It's a very efficient, very powerful card. It's not, it doesn't line up particularly well in modern because of how fatal push and lightning bolt line up exactly. And the fact that the cost is disproportionately scaling like in, in powered formats, the more something costs in a cost that scales the, the worse it ages. And so like you see expensive cards, not age as well in modern as cheap cards because mana is worth more 
in in modern than it is in standard. But uh, Smuggler's Copter has the benefit of being cheap, has the benefit of graveyard synergies, has the benefit and also risk of being an artifact in a format that has tons of benefits for artifacts and tons of ways to punish artifacts. There's lots of different factors, but I think you are right. I think Smuggler's Copter will, it will rise. Um, in particular, I think that some some ways to take advantage of it in that grand architect space where you're 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 using you know you're making it more than the sum of the parts. Right. I think that's going to be part of the equation at some point. And then I also just think that there's going to be spots where you incidentally have enough one toughness creatures and also want to be looting that you're going to end up uh, using Smuggler's Copter. I also just think that it's possible as time goes on that, so, you know, like maybe Mox Opal gets banned. Right. And Affinity ends up taking a slightly slower... Uh, a slightly slower approach, and then you end up with, you know, really valuing the fact that Smuggler's Copter is synergizing with Ornithopter and Signal Pest and Ink Moth Nexus and being part of this whole uh, flying theme, you know? Definitely, definitely. There's lots of ways ways it can end up working out, but I think eventually it will. Totally. So that, I think that pretty much uh, wraps up the thought that I had going into the episode. Uh, you haven't heard Kessler in a minute because he had to step out, so I am finishing up this, uh, this show <laughs> myself. My apologies. Uh, no, He's no. so long-winded. Yeah, no, that wasn't the reason at all. He, just, he had a call from Hong Kong. He runs a toy company, so uh, he got a whole thing he's got to do sometimes it just happens um, <laughs> but um so in any case the the last question i had for you is uh, we just talked about on the intro to the show that i'm actually going to be going to the team unified modern event in san antonio i'm really excited we're going to be joining i'm going to be joining two of our listeners we just announced it and we're, we're looking for listeners of the show to to join the mmcast team it should be a really collaborative thing are you planning on going yeah i'm doing commentary for that event oh cool so you're I'm not actually- going to get to play no, I, yeah, I can't play. I'm doing commentary in the event. I'll be in the booth with Marshall and BDM and Luis Scott Vargas uh, do, covering the event. Cool, very cool. Okay, really well, looking forward to it. I was, yes. Yeah, so, what are your first thoughts? Um, I mean, just shot out of a cannon. What you think the the strongest strategy would be with the Unified Modern? Do you think it's going to be metagame dependent at that point? Well, I mean, it's always metagame dependent, I guess. But I'm uh, uh, I'm not. I, I haven't looked at I haven't looked at it closely enough to know. Um, what the right, what what a good balance is between the different strategies. Yeah, play, I really <laughs> play three good decks that don't overlap. That's the stretch. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would not be surprised if you can if you can like do some reasonable amount of prediction when it comes to uh, figuring out which strategies people are not going to use together. Right. And then uh, I think that the better thing is actually tweaking your sideboard for. Uh, like for instance, there's only going to be 33% at most of certain types of decks and experiences. You know, like there's only going to be at most 33% lightning bolts and 33% ink moth nexus and 33% yeah. tarmac life. It's cool. Yeah, it's, it's it's a cool idea. You have to so you actually have to end up preparing pretty uh, for a pretty wide field. You can't just try to spike a tournament with a single idea, um, which I think makes it really fun. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. We'll have to we'll have to catch up a little bit when we're there. But um, the biggest thing is I wouldn't get too fancy. I would play three good decks that you know, like are familiar with, and instead of you know trying to tech out against other what you perceive to be other decks, modern is so big. Just play three decks that you, that you know. And, the, and then uh, stick to your strengths, and, and Modern really, really rewards that. Yeah, definitely. I, I can't wait. I think it's going to be really fun. That that and the Super GP in Vegas are the two big events that I'm looking forward to. So. Uh, oh, yeah, they're both going to be a blast. Looking yeah. forward to seeing you there. Yeah, it'll be awesome. Patrick, thank you so much for hanging out. I know this episode went a little long, but you, you offered a lot of really, really valuable insight on the subject. I hope uh, the listeners uh, took away from it as much as we did. So, uh yeah, man, what, uh, where, where can the folks find you and, and uh, talk about your podcast and all that? Plug anything you want to plug? <laughs> uh, sure, sure. Flores would get on me if I didn't. Yeah, no, obviously, uh, Top of a Podcast every Thursday, uh, topofapodcast.com and all that, and uh, Star City Games, um, Star City Games Premium, um, uh, you know, every week. And uh, I'm... Uh, I'm a little bit of a ghost on social media, but I suppose you can follow me, the P. Chapin, on Twitter, um, and I'll occasionally talk, I guess. But I'm, uh, uh, and I guess I'm going to be doing coverage for uh, some upcoming events. 
like uh, the, um, yeah, all over the place. I don't know. You can catch catch me in the streets. If you guys couldn't tell, we didn't intro Patrick this time, but he's one of the all-time greatest players. He's in the Hall of Fame. He's won a pro tour, tons of events. So, you know, we're not just talking to someone who's rando. That's why he's got the insight to offer. So uh, go check out the podcast. I listen to Top Level every week. I'm a big fan of the show. So um, keep up the good work on that. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I'm supposed to mention Star City Games also carries uh, the Next Level Magic and Next Level Deck Building. That's the that's that's where you can definitely find me. Yeah, next level. Right. I've read Next Level Magic, but not deck building, uh, and it's it's great. It's totally it's totally informative, and uh, all the you get to go much wider with the theories because you have more time. So um, anyway, guys, thank you so much for awesome. listening, and and thank you, Patrick. We'll we'll talk to you again soon. Oh, awesome. See you, man. See you, bud. All right. So that was that's kind of it for the episode. Uh, once again, thank you to Patrick for coming on. He was great. Uh, you can follow him uh, online at, at the Chapin at the Chapin uh, on Twitter, and you can always ca- check out the content he writes weekly for SEG at StarCityGames.com. Um, and remind everyone to follow us on Twitter. We are at the MMCast. You can follow me personally at Kess Wiley at Ben Bateman Media. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, so YouTube, etc. Yeah. We have a Patreon, and with your help, you. We can make this episode, this show keep on going. We really appreciate it. Uh, one other thing for those people donating to the Patreon that are also going to San Antonio for Team Unified Modern, Ben needs a teammate. He is currently two teammates. Two teammates, uh, and he we are going to pick people that are either uh, current Patreon donators or people that have recently reviewed, starting today, moving forward for the rest of the month of March, uh, reviewed, or probably for the first two weeks of March, reviewed... Uh, the podcast on iTunes, because those are important. That's how we get ranked higher, and we appreciate it in general. Uh, please do either of those things if you can't make it, but if you can make it, you get entered into a, a, a chance to play on Ben's team, and you get free modern swag, uh, yeah, modern all, master swag. And all the cards will be provided by the MM cast to be played with. Um, not to be kept, obviously, but to be played with. And uh, the last thing is, as we said, you're entered with a higher number of entries uh, to possibly do, do this and be the teammate of the, on the MM cast team. If you donate to the Patreon, donators at the higher levels will get more entries, as we do with everything like the swag boxes and everything like that. So um, if you just feel like being really generous for this month because it gives you a shot to be on the MMCast team, that sounds awesome. Um, I can't wait for this tournament. I think it's going to be really fun to eat some barbecue with you guys and play some modern. So thanks for listening to the cast, and uh, check out next week's episode for our full Modern Masters 2017 review. Blood Moon's back. Bye, guys. Boo. Boo, Blood Moon. Thank you for your attention. See you later, alligator.